0: And we're thankful for this church family and for every good thing that you're doing in it, and we even rejoice in the fact that they're, they're suffering. We know, Father, that that that's that's not uh, that's that's counterintuitive for us, but it's because of your Spirit and the truth of your Word and for every good thing that's happened inside of us, Father, that we have joy, even when there are times when our hearts are breaking. And we're just so overwhelmed by Your presence that we do want to sing. And we do want to press our mind into God's Word in such a way that it continues the joy and makes it even more keen and acute in our life and makes us even more aware of Your presence. How great You are. How great You are. And how great is the love that You have lavished upon us that we might become children, Your children, and that is what we are. And we pray, Father, that you'll give us eyes that see and ears that hear as we study this great passage. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I was um, uh, really blessed by the marriage seminar. Really, really blessed. Uh, I, You know, I, I got to hear a lot of what they said five years ago, but there's just something about the way they present uh uh, and, and about the the material that's been updated, and you know we all need to be reminded. And there was so much more uh, new material to learn. I was just really blessed, and there were a lot of things that I remembered, and a lot of things that I've I've written down in my journal. But Lynn made a, just a great point during the marriage seminar this past week. She said that one of the reasons that young people stress over things. Uh, when they're, you know, and sometimes in their early adulthood is because they do not have enough life experiences in which to gauge the importance of something as it pertains to all of life. And that's why, you know, it's the end of the world when a 16-year-old girl uh, looks in the mirror and her hair's not right and it just it puts her down in the dust. And that's the, the reason why, you know, the, the older we get, so many things that we would get upset about. Uh, so many things that, that would, would, would would drive us sometimes to the point of despair if we thought about it, or things that we thought because we did not have them, we we were missing out on something, or because there was something that came into our life that we felt burdened by it. That's why later in life, those things don't really mean that much anymore. And by the time that John is writing this letter, he is a very old man. He is an old, old man. He is at... The end of his life, and he has had a lot of life experiences. In fact, where he's living, uh, where we think he's living when he writes this letter, is far from where he was born. He is not living in the country of his birth. He is no longer in Israel, and so he writes at the end of the, in, in this letter at the end of his life. He writes there. There's when you when you think about it. There's nothing in this life that matters but knowing God. There's nothing that matters but knowing God. He's seen all of the troubles and all of the hardships, along with all of the blessings. He's seen the nice stuff. He's seen all of the miserable stuff. And the thing that is at the top, the thing that is at the top of the list that's unparalleled, that is singular in his thinking is this. It's knowing God. Nothing matters but knowing God. And I wonder if, as a church, we can agree with John. Knowing, at whatever age we're at right now, by experience, you know, we, we've experienced it in our own life, or through revelation, uh, uh, we, we've read it in the Bible, or we, somebody has taught it to us, or we've observed it in somebody else, that everything else in this world will let you down. Uh, you know, you sometimes wonder, you don't really see it that much anymore because of the leash laws, but where I was growing up, uh... in wichita falls and and even after we moved uh... and, and we living in louisiana uh... you know dogs kind of roamed free and it was kind of a, a daily occurrence as you were driving down the street to have a dog chase you i can remember getting on the school bus and this little dog chasing the school bus and i wondered what in the world is that little dog going to do if it catches the bus <laughs> and i you know i've never seen any research on this and i'm not a vet and i've had dogs all my life and i think i know what they'll do if they catch the car catch the bus they'll let it go and turn around and walk off. And I think that's what we do in life a lot. We chase stuff. And we think we got this God-shaped hole and we chase the stuff to try to cram it into that hole and we catch it, we chase after these things and we catch it and we try it and it lets us down and we turn around like that dog catching the bus or the car and we walk away from it. Everything lets you down. And it's not just knowing God intellectually in the sense, yeah, I know there's a God. Yahweh, I think I heard somewhere, is his name. That he lives in heaven, that he's a creator, that, you know, there was a flood one time. It's not just knowing some of the the, the facts about God, God, knowing God intellectually, although that's certainly a part of it. It's it's knowing God intimately. And that's why John says in verse 3 of the very first chapter, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, it's our fellowship. We know what fellowship is all about. That's when we get together and we eat. That's when we get together and, and, and we talk about our kids. I, I fellowship with, with Mark Blankenship and, and with, uh, with uh, Kevin Haley and with Shane West a lot. And when we get together, we eat together and we talk about our kids and we talk about what's troubling us or we talk about what's making us happy. We talk about life. We talk about marriage. We talk about all of these kinds of things. And we encourage each other and we pray for each other. And all of these things are happening. That's the kind of relationship that John is saying, I have with God. What we experience with each other in fellowship is the kind of fellowship, the kind of relationship that that John is describing that he has with God. It's communion with God on a daily basis. It's fellowship. And that's what makes his joy complete, verse 4 of chapter 1. The great joy, the complete joy, the, the, the full joy that Peter's going to describe as being inexpressible. That's the reality in this life. And it not only brings joy into this life, but when you have fellowship with God, when you have that kind of communion with God, look at chapter 2 and verse 25. It also brings eternal life. That is, it brings life into the world to come. He says in verse 25, this is what He, the Father, has promised us. Even what? Church said. Eternal Eternal life eternal life. And John wants his readers to know that they can know God. That they have eternal life, and he's given them three tests or experiences that help them know how they they can know God and have eternal life. He says in 1 John chapter 5 verse 13, "I'm writing all of this stuff to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know. Here are the three tests. Number 1. Do they obey the commandments? That is are these people that he's writing to that call themselves Christians who have fellowship with God, they can know that they know God, they have that fellowship with God, that they have that, that complete joy because they experience a character change in their life. They obey the commandments. There is a, a moral, ethical change in the way they conduct themselves in the world. And then number two, do they love the brothers and sisters? Do they have the kind of relationship with the people that call themselves Christians who are God's children, their own brothers and sisters? Do they love these people? And John is going to go th- uh, primarily in the fourth chapter and uh, uh, talk about what it means to, to have that kind of change in your life that is, that is a, um, a solid experience of the reality of knowing God. And then, do they have an experience with the gospel? Do they understand that Jesus came in the flesh? Do they understand that He is the Son of God, that He died on the cross and became the atoning sacrifice for their sin? Because if you don't believe that, John is going to say, there there are certain things that if you don't believe it, you're not a Christian. So those are the three tests, and in our text tonight, he wants to continue this line of thought, and he does it with an interesting phrase in the very last verse that Bob read for us tonight, chapter 2 and verse 29, he says, You know that everyone who does what is right has been what? Three words. Born of Him, or born of God. He could have said, Everyone born of Him does what is right. But he says, Everyone who does what is right is born of Him. He doesn't say it quite the way we would expect. He writes, everyone who does what is right is born of Him. I think the order of those words tremendously important. And I think He wants to teach us a couple of things uh, with the order of those words in verse 29 tonight. The first is, is this. It's impossible to live a righteous life unless you have been born again or born of God or born of Him. You know, a lot of times it's pretty easy to think that the Christian life is a mechanical life, meaning that as long as I do the right things and I don't do the wrong things, then I'm going to be okay with God. It's, you know, I haven't hurt anybody, I've never intentionally hurt anybody, I've, I've tried to live a good life and so on, then I'm okay with God. Now, that's not entirely wrong. It's just that Christianity, that our faith, what we read is the faith in the Bible... Doctrinally and in the experience of, 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 of the heroes of the faith in the New Testament, Christianity is more than the mechanics. It's being like God. It's resembling God. It's imitating God. It's, it's, it's ultimately more than just the mechanics. Now for that to happen, there has to be an invasion into the human heart because the human heart has to be revolutionized. The problem is we want to sin. Mechanically, we can do some of the right things. But when you get right down to it, those temptations are coming at us right and left. When you get right down to it, there's not hardly a a, a day that passes by that we're not encountering and being confronted by some kind of a temptation that is a whopper. And where does that sin begin? Well, the brother of Jesus, James, helps us to, 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 to figure this out. In James chapter 1, verse 14, each one is tempted when by his own, inside of your own being, inside of your own person, your heart, your mind, your soul, each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he's dragged away and enticed. Then after the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. And what John is saying is that if you want to get rid of that birth to death, you have to be born of Him. That's why it's more than just mechanical obedience to the commandments that John is writing about. You have to be born again. And here's why. You know, if, if, if you look around town, you, you know most of us get in the car, we drive around, we go to the HEB, we, we go to work, we go to school, we interact with people in the mall in stores and all over the place and interact with people in the neighborhood. We have contact with all kinds of people around town. And some of these people say they believe in God Maybe only at the intellectual level. I believe there's a God, but I don't know much about Him. But I believe there's a God. And some of the other people around town that we interact with, they say up front, they do not believe in God at all. They would say, I'm not a Christian. I'm not a believer. I'm not a disciple. I'm not even agnostic. I'm an atheist. But, and yet, they love the people in their neighborhood. Pretty much the way they love themselves. And when it comes to the poor, they're pretty generous. And they want to do unto others as they want others to do to them. They are compassionate. They are honest. And a lot of the time they do a pretty good job at it. And when you expand just out of our own circle of influence and the people that we have contact with, you know, basically all of the religions, the major religions of the world, pretty much agree on what a moral life looks like. They all basically agree with, the Ten Commandments, a good place to, if you want to read on this, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a, a book entitled, one of his early, earliest books, maybe his first book, uh, and, and one of his best books called The Abolition of Man. And uh, at the end of that book is, uh, is an index or an appendix uh, that traces all of the ethical teachings of the major religions of the world. And what he's trying to say is that there is a sense of what good is supposed to look like at the human level in basically all of the r- religions. But here's the thing. What John is trying to communicate is that no one can live a righteous life unless they are born of God. What the Bible puts in front of us is more than just a set of mechanical rules to live by. What the Bible describes to us as the life of a disciple is more than just a list of the do's and the don'ts that we live by. That we post it on that refrigerator and we see it every day and we say, you know what, I'm not going to do that, but I'm going to do these things. And that's why when you look at the New Testament, you can't separate the teachings of Jesus from the supernatural miracles of of Jesus. You know, there was a period of time in our own country... uh, Back in the, the, the 1930s, when um, Fosdick, preaching at at, at First Pres in in Manhattan near uh, Union Seminary, got up in one of the most famous, I think, infamous sermons ever preached on American soil. Basically, was saying, uh, we we you know we're modern people. We don't have to believe in the miracles. We don't have to believe in the virgin birth. We don't have to believe in uh, the sacrifice and the atonement and the Holy Spirit and all all of these miracles. The only thing that matters is the ethical teaching of Jesus. He is an inspiration for us to live by, but we jettison all of this other stuff. Now, we try to separate those. A lot of us try to separate Jesus' teaching from who He really is and the miracles that He does. But now think of it this way. Have you ever read the Sermon on the Mount just as moral teaching? just looked at the Sermon on the Mount and said, you know what, I really like what it says. In fact, I want to live in a house like that. I mean a house in which you have two people that are, they understand the Sermon on the Mount and they're trying to live it. That's going to be a pretty good household. I mean, even if one person is living in it, it's a good household. Or a workplace. Or a classroom. But when I read it, I find it to have an incredible, inspiring, ethical teaching that I have absolutely no hope of ever being able to do unless I'm born again. Unless I'm born of God. The ethical teaching of Jesus is just so gigantic and massive and immense that it drops you in the dust and you'll beg to be born again just in order to do it. I mean, I have and you have no hope of living according to its standards unless I am and you are born of God. Think about what Jesus says at the end of chapter 5, the first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Be what? Now, you all know, a lot of debate on what that means. It means be complete or be mature. Be like God, your Heavenly Father. The Sermon on the Mount is, is, is a call to imitate God. And what happens inside of this sermon is that Jesus is combining ethical behavior, that is, the mechanics of what it means to live a Christian life, with a revolutionized heart, which means that Christianity, out of all of the religions in the world, hear this, out of all of the religions in the world, Christianity is the one that combines and unites together the heart and the will in perfect union. It's not just mechanical behavior, but it's the right kind of heart to go with it. It's not just changing your agenda or changing your steps or changing the way that you might ethically relate or respond to a certain situation. It's also changing your heart. That's why he says, you know, it's not enough to never physically or literally kill somebody. I mean, all of us can do that. I mean, we can exercise enough, self-control that we can say you know what i'm not going to kill that person I wish i could i wish i could i wish I could take you know this this truck and drive right over but jesus says you know what you can't be angry with them in a simple way you see it's not just mechanical not killing somebody you can't even hate them in your heart That's pretty hard. It's not enough to never physically or literally commit adultery technically. You've never been an adulterer. Pretty easy to do. You set up some rules in your life, set up some guidelines. You can set up a a kind of mechanical life in which you're kind of guarded or protected from committing adultery. But, Jesus says, it's more than that. You can't treat men, a woman like a piece of meat, and lust after it. And the same with the women towards the men. You can't even lust in your heart. And quite frankly, the human heart can't do it on its own. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all fall short, all sin and fall short of the glory of God. You know, when I read the Sermon on the Mount, and I read about turning the other cheek and I read about going the extra mile and, and the way that I give my alms in a way that it doesn't become a, a, a an instance for me to be congratulated or to pray in such a way that it's just God in me or to, to fast in such a way that it's just God in me. And not to worry about what I'm going to eat or drink, but to change. You know, when, when I when I read that, what I begin to believe is that it would take a miracle. For me to be able to live according to the standards that Jesus teaches in the Sermon on, on the Mount. Which, by the way, is exactly what you get when you're born of Him. And that's why it's not enough just to act as if you're not impatient when you really are what god is doing through jesus and through your salvation and putting the spirit inside of you is it, it it you know if you've been impatient all of your life and it's gotten you into trouble and messed up your relationships and got you in dutch with your boss and created problems crises in the job situation then all of a sudden because of the spirit of god and because of the fruit of the spirit you get patient and maybe you've been impulsive and you've said things that you shouldn't have said or maybe you've spent money that you shouldn't have spent you're impulsive you're impetuous Well, because of the Spirit of God that is inside of you, you get self-controlled. Real righteousness is a supernatural thing that grows inside of you. Paul is going to call it in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit that is the result of walking in agreement with the Spirit. And what God is doing when you are born of Him is to break through the barriers of your personality and bring the real righteousness and to bring the real character of Jesus into your life. That's that's how hypocrisy is driven from us. It's not that we're going to live a sinless life once we become a Christian. In fact, He's going to say at the beginning of the very next chapter, He's going to say, you know, when we see Him, we're going to be like Him because we'll see Him as He is. There is going to be one day where there is going to be sin driven from our existence. But in the meantime, it's this process in which the hypocrisy, the the gap between the mechanical obedience and the heart that really wants it comes closer and closer together. And John writes that everyone who's moving in that direction is born of Him, which brings up a second point. Doing what is right is a result of being born of Him. Again, that, that phrase, born again, is interesting. Normally the phrase born again make us, makes us think of what president do you think of when you think of uh, born again? Jimmy Carter, right? It makes And it also makes us think of certain Christian denominations. But quite frankly, and again, biblically speaking, there is no other kind of Christianity than the born again or the born of him or the born from above, John chapter 3, kind. Now, there are lots of places that we could go to to talk about this, but we're running out of time. Uh, let's just look at Second Peter chapter 1, verse 4. One of the best places in the New Testament to describe this. And Peter says, Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in what? The Divine nature in order to what? Escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. You can't get past the evil uh, uh, corruption of the world on your own. Why? Because inside of your heart you have the evil desires. So what do you need? Peter says you got to participate in the divine nature. Literally in the Greek language, you are partakers of the divine nature. Now, I, 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 you're probably thinking, what in the world does that mean? I don't have the nuts and bolts on that. But what Peter is telling us is that when you become a Christian, it's not like joining a fraternity or the quilt guild. Something divine, something of God is coming to bear on your life. You're not doing it by yourself because you can't do it by yourself. You have to have God's help to do what John is writing about in chapter 2 and verse 6 when he says, you know, whoever claims to live in Him must walk as Jesus did. Talk about the challenge of merging both will and heart. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians, that we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness. What's happening? We're being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory. On a day-to-day basis, because of the power of God, Because of the Spirit of God, we're being transformed. Paul Paul would say it in Romans chapter 8, being conformed to the image of of Christ. We're being transformed into His likeness. This means we're going through a metamorphosis. There are changes that are taking place by degrees. It's with ever-increasing glory. But this comes from the Lord, who is the what? Spirit. This is how the union between the will and the heart gets accomplished. It's God working in you. Now there are other places that we could we could go, but but we need to move on. W- one last point, and then we're done with this particular verse. And and again, we're 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 uh, we're you, you know the the, the wording is uh, you know, all has to do with verse twenty nine, but all who are born of him will do right. When when there there are times, I, I have been a disciple of Jesus. 1974. 13 years of age. April 24th, 1974, my brother and I were baptized by my dad. And there are times w- when you look down the road that lies before you, it can be very, very intimidating. I had a very, very clear call, a uh, 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 um, uh, 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 a an, 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 an experience through through prayer and interaction with with other folks that you know to to go to the mission field I mean I knew that that's what i was i was built to do and I was for a period of time built and 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 Ellen and I w- lived on the mission field were you know working with with people in a language that if you'd have told me when in nineteen seventy four that I would be fluent in portuguese and 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 I would have said what what what's portuguese you know, it, it can be in, in, intimidating. And and, and and not only that, when, when you think about when you're really honest with yourself and you, you think about your impetuousness and your impulsiveness and your desires and your you know the things that drive you, the motivations that you have that are hardly ever holy, and the emotions that seem to get out of place and the affections that are misplaced, You know, what it is that we're we're called to do is pretty intimidating. But when you say you cannot change, that you cannot be transformed into the likeness of Christ with ever-increasing glory, that you cannot partake of the divine nature in order to overcome the corruption of the world and its evil desires, and it may be because you keep falling into the same kind of impatience or anger or lust or greed or whatever. But when you say that, especially in light of what we just saw about the work of God in your life, then you are insulting. You are insulting. You are insulting the great person who now lives in you. All who are born will do God cannot tolerate even a whiff of evil. And now that God resides in you, that means that holiness itself is in you, eating at that sin, and eating at that unholiness, and and eating at those, those corrupt desires. Now, you know, this is where it gets a little uncomfortable for us. There is a reason why many of us in this room lead a double life. There is that uh, mechanical part of the faith, which again, is is certainly not wrong. But in that double life, that's the only thing there is. They work the mechanical part of the faith, but their heart is not being changed. The hunger for God, the thirst for righteousness that brings that blessedness of, of, of being sated, of, of being filled up. Of, of loving the things that God loves and hating the things that He hates. And all of those lists of, 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 of the fruit of the Spirit and, and all, all of those, those, those character developments that we find in Romans 5 and in and 2 Peter 1, none of that is, is taking root in the heart. That's why we lead a double life. And that's why we're not walking as Jesus walked. And what John is saying to you, and what I'm saying to you as your minister tonight, what John is saying is that enough of that. You can change anything once you realize the resources that are within you. You can change anything by God's help. John writes in chapter 4, your children, you are from God and have overcome them. The spirit of the Antichrist He's talking about the beginning of chapter 4. You have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. The resources, church, for spirituality that you have within you are phenomenal and powerful to spread throughout your entire life. But you have to be born of Him. You have to be born of him. We'll end with this thought. He says, and this is where we'll pick up uh the next time we look at at first John it'll be chapter three verse one. He says, "How great is the love the Father has lavished on us do you do you know what the experience of being born of him is like when when you confess and you repent and your sins are washed away in baptism and The Spirit, the gift of the Spirit comes to reside in you and you live your life, you you know, being transformed on a daily basis with ever-increasing likeness to the the image of, of Christ. The experience of being born of Him is an experience of love being lavished on you. He says, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. A better translation at the beginning of verse 1 would be, behold. It's look with, with incredible awe at the love that's been lavished on you. Behold, the greatness of God's love. And then he writes in the first part of that verse that we're children of God. That's what that love does. It's made us children of God. We're part of His family. And then very oddly, if you look at all the manuals of style, he adds, and that is what we are. Why the redundancy? Why the redundancy? I mean, if you go to Strunk and White, if you go to uh, uh, Turebi, if you go to the Chicago Manual of Style, what is it that they tell you, editors? They tell you, you always cut out the redundant words. Cut to the chase. Why do they say that? The redundancy is unnecessary. You cut it out. So why does Paul, uh, uh, John, Why does John do it? Why why does John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and thinking in his old age that there's nothing that really matters except knowing God and having that kind of fellowship and that kind of joy, knowing that eternal life is a promise, why the redundancy? Why does he write, we're children of God, and that is what we are. You know what the reason is? I think... Because he can't get over that fact. He can't get over it. He can't get over the fact that everything that he knows about the holiness and the greatness of God, that that God chose him through Christ to be his child. And he's sitting there in his old age And Rome's not being very nice to him. At some point he's going to end up on a really bad, uh, you, you know, he's sort of this spiritual Gilligan out on this deserted island. But it's okay. You know why? Because he's not alone. He has fellowship with God. He has communion with God. He is God's child. He's been lavished with God's love ever since he met Jesus. And he can't get over the fact that he's been born of God. That's why the redundancy. He can't get over the fact that he's a child of God. He is amazed with the love of God. And he is awash in it. I think the reason why, quite frankly, I think the reason why the hypocrisy in us. And and I'm I'm not saying that in an indicting kind of a way. We all struggle with the motivations of our heart matching what we know to do ethically in our behavior. And that's not hypocrisy when we're trying to overcome and we still yet fail. That's not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is saying, you know, I can change and I'm not going to change regardless of the, but I'm going to act as if I'm changing. That's the hypocrisy. The, the, The reason that there is a higher degree of hypocrisy in us and the reason why we we change we don't change and, and struggle with the changes that we should make and, and wish to God that we could change is because we're not doing what John is doing when he writes this letter, and that is beholding. Beholding the love of God that has been lavished on us. That even when our heart is breaking and things are going terribly and even if we don't win ever again in this life, And we don't drop to the dust when the Longhorns lose. And we we don't feel as if our world is falling apart and we make everybody around us miserable when the Cowboys don't win. And you don't have to be old, you just have to be born of Him. To have that kind of joy and that kind of of hope, of eternal life, and that kind of change happening in your life. Jeff, we need to sing a song. What are we singing? We're going to sing, Wake Up, O Sleeper. (laughs) What a great song. 9.31, if you don't know it, the words and music will be up on the screen too. Let's wake up. And let's stop sleeping when it comes to the kind of life that we've been called to live in this day, in this town, in this city, and in this church. Amen? And let's praise God for all of the things that He's doing and for the potential of, of the kind of person that we are going to become in Christ Jesus because of what God is doing in making us His children. We're born of Him. And if there's any way that our church can help you by helping you be born of Him, or to live out the implications of that. Our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. Come down and...